This is the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Brought to you by the Academy of Dental CPAs. Whether it's taxes, investing, or planning wisely, Art is your guide to make your dental practice as profitable as possible. Here's your host, Dental CPA, Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman CPA, and I'm Art Wiederman CPA. Uh, I'm a dental-specific CPA located in Southern California, near the beach. I like the beach. Uh, And um, I am a member of the National Academy of Dental CPAs, which is 24 CPA firms across the United States that represent about 9,000 dentists. I have uh, in our CPA group in Southern California, we have about 250 dentists that we work with on a regular basis on uh, tax, financial planning, metrics of dental practices, which will actually be my tip of the week this week, uh, and uh, lots of other stuff. And today, uh, again, as I've mentioned to you, I, uh, I'm going to introduce you to my friends that I have met through my journey um, in my career. And my guest today uh, is uh, Brian Connors, who is a certified financial planner and an MBA and an investment advisor. And Brian is as well-schooled in financial planning and how to help you meet your goals uh, and also in kind of what's going on in investments and what kind of road you should take uh, to invest your money. So we're going to talk about that during the whole hour. And uh, uh, again, pull out a piece of paper and a pencil. You're going to get lots of really good information from Brian, and we'll get to Brian in a minute. Let me give you a little bit of information uh, how to get a hold of me. If you want to get a hold of me at our offices in Tustin, please call 714 259 0505. That's 714 259 0505. You can email me with a question or, or comment or anything you like uh, at artweederman at gmail.com. If you want to look at all the previous uh, podcasts that we've done, and we we are in the 40s right now of the podcast, and again, we're getting an amazing, amazing um, listening audience. It, it's growing every single week. Thank you so much. Please tell your friends about our podcast. Uh, go to our website, which is hmwccpa.com. Go to the resources link and go to click, well, click on podcasts, and you'll be able to see all of our podcasts, including the one that we're recording today with my good friend, Brian Connors. So before we get to Brian, I want to give you my little tip, and this is on metrics today. And and folks, the more I work with metrics in dental practices and the more I work with these dashboard programs uh, out there, which are fantastic, uh, the more I realize that that my uh, calling to the dental profession is to help my doctors to be more profitable. And you, you are able to pull numbers out of these programs through these dashboard programs uh, that will allow you to make really great business decisions. So one of the metrics I want to talk about today that you can pull out through the dashboard programs is called the new patient reappointment percentage. So what that means is if I have 20 new patients come into my practice in a month, uh, I want to know how many of those patients walk out of their first appointment with a hygiene appointment uh, or maybe with a restorative appointment. Because if you get 20 new patients that come into your office and only three of them make another appointment, what is that telling you? That's not telling you that they don't need to ever see a dentist again. Of course not. What it's telling you is that your new patient experience is not what it should be. You're not creating the relationship you need to 
create with the patient. You're not creating the trust that you need to create with the patient. Um, you're not educating the patient and explaining to them why it is they need what they need and what the benefits are to them. And your team is maybe not explaining the financial uh, aspect of this. So we want to look at this. We were looking for at least 60% of our patients. So if 20 patients come in, I want 12 of them reappointed going forward. That's really, really important to me because if not, then patients are going out the back. They're coming in. You, you could be spending 40000 a year on marketing and the patients are coming in and they're going right out the back door. So it's very important that you monitor how many of your new patients every month are making a, a new appointment or reappointing, as we call it. And we'll be doing, we'll actually be doing total shows. I'll be doing them myself on the metrics of a dental practice as we uh, go forward towards the end of 2019. Gosh, I can't believe uh, we're recording this on uh, September 26th. So I do get to do a shout out to my beautiful, wonderful wife of 34 years, Lynn, who today is her birthday. And um, so happy birthday, honey. It's uh, uh, it, it's a joy to be married to you. And um, so anyway, uh, enough of that. Uh, let's talk about our guest. Uh, our guest is Brian Connors. And I've met Brian through my networking group. Uh, Brian is just a wonderful, wonderful man, very engaging, very intelligent, very, very much uh, engaged in helping his clients. So I'll tell you a little bit about Brian. Brian's here in Orange County. He's an MBA uh, and a CFP. Um, he has over 30 years of experience in advising high net worth individuals and business owners on tax financial investment matters. Uh, he is also a fellow podcaster. He hosts a show called The Financial Freedom Show. Uh, Brian got his bachelor's of science from uh, State University of New York. So he is a fellow New Yorker like I am. Uh, I guess that's up, uh, that's upstate and I'm, uh, I was downstate in the city. Um, he got his degree in electrical engineering and he got his MBA from Northrop University in Los Angeles. So my good friend, Brian Connors, welcome to the Art of Dental Finance. Hey, thanks, Art. I appreciate being on your program today. Uh, I'm excited to talk about a matter that I think is important to most people, their finances, and most importantly, uh, their financial future, um, their family's legacy. And so uh, thank you for having me. And by the way, happy birthday, Lynn. Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, 34 years, Art. Congratulations. Uh, you're a lucky man. I way, I way overachieved in the marriage uh, situation. And um, again, the fact that anybody would hang out with me for 34 minutes, no less 34 years is amazing. So, so tell us a little bit about your journey, Brian. Okay. Um, so again, I um, started out in the uh, engineering profession. Uh, as you mentioned, my family is uh, primarily technical people, um, engineering oriented. And so that was my first job in life. I gravitated to the West Coast through my first employer, which was Hughes Aircraft uh, Aerospace Company. And I was in radar and communications on the first shuttle uh, program that they were working on. And, and then I moved into satellite defense for a number of years. And then uh, obviously then I um, kind of pursued some other divergences in my career path, which was uh, going into major account sales for Hewlett Packard, which was a deviation that I never thought I'd take. Um, sales in my family generally didn't have a very good uh, reputation for profession, at least, but I found it to be very um, helpful to me in terms of learning how to communicate concepts and ideas 
and sell value. And so some of the best training I received in my life was actually through Hewlett Packard. But during that course, uh, I met a gentleman that talked about this idea of financial planning, which is a totally new area to me. I didn't really know much about finance. I did have an MBA, but as far as the profession itself, even though I came from the East Coast, which was largely dominated by you know brokerage firms and financial companies, that was not the, the career that I had pursued. Nevertheless, the idea of uh, using kind of a, um, a process approach to helping people solve their own personal financial problems was intriguing to me. It was process oriented. It was, you know, used math. And also it had what I felt was important was it actually was to the best interest of the person that you were providing the advice to. And I felt that was very important to me. I, I didn't really want to be slinging and selling investments. That was my original feeling about what the brokerage community was all about. I wanted to sell or communicate and uh, provide value that would help people with their uh, most important thing next to maybe their their loved ones, their marriage, uh, their finances, and help them do things that could maybe give them more options in life, improve their lifestyle, and support their family. So uh, that's what happened um, in the mid 80s. And I finally went full time in the early 90s. Uh, what was notable about that was right about that time uh, was the first known institutional independent platform, which was Charles Schwab, which gave a lot of independent advisors like myself the, ch the chance to provide not only fee-based uh, financial planning advice, which we were already doing, but also to give them a totally fee-based approach in, in the financial investment and wealth management arena. Uh, so from that time forward, uh, I was very blessed and fortunate that the financial markets did particularly well in the 90s, thankfully. That's what I heard. Yeah. And, and that, that gave me the sustainability to grow my practice in a very good period. And, and fortunately, I, again, I feel very fortunate uh, that I've been able to sustain my own career uh, this long. Because as you know, Art, there's many people in your business that have changed careers, not because they needed to, but because the economy changed and they need to do something different. And that's very disruptive. So that's why it's, to me, very important to uh, try to get your own financial house in order because we don't know what those uh, different twists and turns are going to be in our life. But to make sure that we can be what I call have a sustainable lifestyle. And that's kind of where I see the difference of what maybe I'm doing from some of my peers. Not that they aren't professional and providing valued advice as well, but it's about that um, uh, idea, I guess I call it, about sustainability, which to me um, brings in a lot of things. Um, it brings about a way that you approach the way you're doing something. Um, hopefully it has durability. And um, to some degree, it's somewhat of a mathematical process. It's, it's statistically based. And right. what we're trying to bring to people, particularly that are embarking on this new venture in life, the baby boomers, into retirement, where now they're going to be going from 30 years working 
uh, fully employed with an income to potentially 30 years or more with uh, a lifestyle in retirement with no employable income. And uh, while that's a wonderful part of life, which we hope for many will be uh, lots of fun and time to spend doing other activities that they enjoy, um, it poses new risks. Uh, one is just about the sustainability of it all. Can they, can they be able to have enough income coming in to hopefully last uh, potentially to a life expectancy of maybe 95, which maybe be beyond mortality, but it's, it's where we're going because we do know people and you probably do as well. Yes. That are well beyond their nineties and many of them are living past a hundred now. So, um, so that's kind of what we've been working on in the, in the more recent years. Um, it's, it's a little bit different than what most people have been in previous years, uh, kind of trained or kind of, uh, told what to do because majority of the strategies till now were focused on what we call wealth accumulation. And we can talk a little bit about what those differences are. Um, you know, but the, the point is there are differences in what you might do or not do when you're saving, you know, in your earning years for retirement because you have time and um, there's a certain benefit to that because you can use that time to your advantage. But once you go into distribution phase, when you're in retirement, uh, you need to think about it a little bit differently. So we, we've employed some new ideas and thinking about what you should be considering in that process, because we do consider it a process. And we cool. kind of approach our, our strategy first with that in mind, and then the uh, solutions or investments, um, you know, what you do with your actual money will follow that. Um, not the other way around. That's right. And, and, and Brian, it's, it's really important. And that's a great intro as to why you really need a financial plan. But let, let's, let's, let's see where do we start. Okay. I, I have a dentist and that dentist is, let, let, I'm going to make this up. I'll put you on the spot. Dentist is 42. He's married. He's got a couple of kids or maybe, uh, you know, 10 and 12 years old. They're, they're in middle school or in public school. And, you know, Dennis built his practice. He's starting to save. Maybe he's got a simple IRA. Maybe he's got a profit sharing plan. Maybe he saved four or $500,000. And they come to you and wh- where do you start? So they come to you and, and they say, I, I, I listen to Art and Brian on the, on the podcast and, and I need a financial plan. And, and so w- where do you start? Okay. Um, thanks, Art. Yeah, well, so what, what we start out is, is trying to gather information first. Uh, and that always starts with what are your goals, which a lot of people find, well, you know, I just want to save money. I want to make as much money as I can, right? That's typically what, you know, first comes to mind or what people think, you know, what are you going to do for me? How much money are you going to make me? And, you know, I want to grow my money as fast as possible, which can't disagree. Most people would want that. Um, but it really comes down to what are the broader set of goals that the, that the client's trying to achieve? Obviously, retirement is going to be high in that list. But then you got children's education. A uh, person 42 years old probably has a few kids at this point um, that um, looking at college and what are we going to do about that? Um, you know, and I'm building my business maybe if I'm a dentist. So I have, you know, reasons that I'm going to have to invest in the business. So what we kind of do there first is to try to gather as enough information. We gather 
just about as much as possible about what they have in terms of their uh, uh, income, their their cash flow ex- expenses. So we try to build a cash flow statement. And then we look at their existing assets, their home, what their liabilities are. So we look at it from kind of what you do in a different way, Art. We, you know, you're, you're an accountant. Uh, we look at it from the personal level of personal finance, but you're basically employing the same types of tools, which is income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow, but it's on a personal level. Um, and so we start with that, and then we kind of look at what are the goals and what do they need to achieve those goals. Number one, retirement. What are their, when do they want to retire? What do they expect they want kind of income? Um, children's education. Are they going to go to public school, private school? Are they even going to go to maybe private education for high school? So <clears throat> we would try to analyze what that's going to require in terms of um, either uh, positioning money t- for that reason or saving for that. So for a lot of people, it starts out with saving because they may not have a lot of existing assets. So we would uh, try to build into their plan, looking at their cash flow. Hopefully they have positive cash flow. Surprisingly, some people have a problem just with that. Their cash flow is minimal. Well, I, I've never seen that, Brian. All my clients have positive cash flow. It's all- How can you say that? That's awful. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when we talk about cash flow, again, just not to be too technical about it, we're just talking about the difference between your income and your expenses and maybe other kind of things that you could use for uh, investment. But um, that's important. And, and many people try to short circuit that because they don't really want to know. They want to live a comfortable lifestyle. Can't disagree with that. But um, in some cases, that's where it has to begin. But assuming they have positive cash flow. Then we would look at, okay, so how much do we have to devote for the other goal, the goals of retirement, children's education, to name name a few, and what are the best ways to achieve that? And we would look at all the different retirement plan options, IRAs, 401ks, you know, uh, defined contribution plans, and maybe even defined benefit plans if they're making enough money, uh, which plan might be the most appropriate for them. Um we can help them set some of those things up ourselves. Some of them are already set up with their existing employer if they're working for someone. Uh, but those are some things we can advise them on. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I have, a, I have a rule that I use on this program. Brian, I don't know if I've talked to you about this. And when we've seen each other, it's, it's called my 65-25-10 rule, where I say 65% of what you, what you earn, you live on. About 25% uh, is devoted to taxes. And if you live in a state that doesn't have state income taxes, that's probably a little lower. And uh, the 65 and 25 is 90. That leaves 10%. And that 10% is for savings. Unfortunately, Brian, many of my clients, as you pointed out with negative cash flow, live on the 90, 25 minus 15 rule, which is unfortunately they spend 90% of what they make. They struggle to pay their taxes and then they put money on Credit cards. Talk about credit card debt for a second. I got to. I got to address that. How, how do you sure. address that with a client? Well, obviously, most credit cards. I mean, the average rate is anywhere from twelve to maybe 28 percent. So you can't achieve those returns in finance. And credit cards will just drain whatever kind of available cash flow that you have, because most of it's interest and. A lot of it, uh, in many cases, unless you're in a business, is non-deductible. So you're just, you know, draining money out of your out of your balance sheet and of your resources that 
can be used for investment. So once you're behind that, you know, uh, with high balances on credit cards, you've almost just doomed yourself in terms of what you're going to be able to do on the investment side. And that's kind of interesting because, you know, most people, that's one of the major reasons they don't save is because their lifestyle is just too big for their what what they earn and what they make. And they don't actually look at that and they don't address it. And they they really never try to sit down and kind of understand what does that mean in terms of their balance sheet and what that means on the income statement. And like you said, Art, they're spending 90% of what they make and then they've got taxes. So they're behind on taxes and there really is no money left for cash for investment. And most of it is going if they, they're in the case where there are more than a few people, they're actually spending more than they make. And so now it's all going on credit cards and they're just digging themselves a big hole. So let, let, let's get into that a little further because I think this is sure. really, really important, Brian. Let's talk about the psychology. So you get a client like that, and I, I'm sure you've had them. Every, every CPA and financial planner on the planet has these types of clients. And how do you get into the psychology of, of, of you know, on the one hand, you, you can't tell people how to live their lives. We're advisors, folks. Brian and I are advisors. We're very good advisors, but we don't live your life for you. So, Brian, get into kind of like, if you see something like that, how do you try and counsel someone to kind of, it's kind of like if someone's been smoking for 40 years and they can't breathe and they're walking around, but they keep doing it. A doctor's got to shake you and say, you know, we got to change. How do we change the behavior? That's a great question. And, you know, I struggle with that as much as anybody. Um, there actually are some people that actually are in that behavioral side of helping people think about money differently. Um, I'm not per se the best in that. Um, what I look for to, first of all, in terms of the people that I can work for is what I call a wealth management mindset, a wealth accumulation mindset. For whatever reason, and it can be, you know, some of the people that have had the hardest struggle in life growing up are actually the best at saving because they've seen tough times and they've, they've seen the downside of not having money. And then other people, fortunately, have been gifted in terms of making money and they have great careers, but their lifestyle is about, you know, cars, bigger homes, uh, fancy vacations and that kind of thing. And the best I can try to do is, in my mind, is to hopefully get the person to let's at least look at it constructively. We had a case like that. Uh, a couple had a very good business. And for whatever reason, you know, they just want, you know, more stuff. You know, they want to buy airplanes, of all things. And yet, you know, they have, you know, they're making a, a tremendous amount of income in the business. Well, you know, multiple six figures. And in fact, drain their money, uh, their cash flow and everything else. So it, it was totally upside down. We, we gave them a few books. Um, I like, I, I think one of the best ways to try to change behavior, in my opinion, is education. Uh, there's a few books that I suggest people to read. The Richest Man in Babylon is one of the books I think is one of the best. Think and Grow Rich. Uh, these are books that I found helpful to me when I was early and young about the way to think about money, the way to think about your life, 
and what's important and, you know, what, what, but it ultimately comes down to what you value. And when, when someone, I don't get that feeling that it's important enough to them uh, after uh, a meeting, maybe two meetings, then I really, I'm not a behavioral, I consider myself a behavioral psychologist in finance. I, sometimes I call myself a, a financial psychologist, but there is a point that I can't spend enough time to really change behavior unless there's a person that wants to change the behavior themselves. I did have a case that I can say was a very big success. A young gentleman owned his own business, had a franchise, uh, and he had all the fancy things, single guy, uh, driving around in a, uh, a red Corvette, if I remember right, uh, fun guy. Uh, and he came to see me and it was about $80,000 in credit card debt. And and I said to him, I said, you know, and he was referred to me, which is I always take it as a, uh, you know, do whatever I can to anybody that was a, an existing client refers me somebody. I always will do whatever I can to help that person, even if I have to invest some time, uh, because I, I cherish the people that have, um, have uh, chosen to take me on as their advisor and pass that, you know, trust on to me. But with that being said, I just said to this gentleman, I said, look, I can't really help you other than tell you if you can pay down this credit card debt in a reasonable period of time. We mapped out a pay down of like two years of a certain amount of money. It was pretty much most of his fund money and everything else. And sure enough, about two years or a little bit longer than that, he came back to me and says, I did it. I said, wonderful. Um, and I personally really, uh, so I look at the type of client, I wasn't going to really make much money on that kind of uh, relationship, but you know, th th there's a side of us in the professional capacity. I think you're there, Art, as well. If anybody really wants help, there's a lot of people, including myself, probably you and others, that will do whatever it takes to help them. We are very caring people in the financial services profession, and um, uh, it, it is it is a it's a very daunting task, but it's also, as you said, very. Very rewarding. So I know we talked about the mistake of overspending. What other mistakes do you see people make handling their own finances and financial planning you might be able to point out? Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of them in terms of, uh, you know, in the investment side, you know, there's, there's, there's a litany of them. But some of the ones that um, are most common are chasing return. People will look at uh, past performance and extrapolate forward as to what the expected return is going to be in that investment. Most of the time, if it had great past performance, it's unlikely that's going to be repeatable. And in fact, it might lead to potentially taking on greater risk, which is the second one, lack of appreciation for risk. In fact, this is perhaps one of the biggest areas we spend most of our time on in these days is, is analyzing the risk, uh, what we call the risk-adjusted return. Um, but analyzing what is the risk you're taking on, uh, obviously there's a statistical measure, but there's also uh, what's going on in the marketplace, what that risk looks like at any particular moment in time. So people just really have a very difficult time assessing risk. You know, all the big frauds that have occurred in life, most of them are attributable to chasing uh, performance and returns, expectations that they're going to get rich. That's that's kind of bad behavior. There's a number of emotional biases that get in the way uh, of people making good judgment. Um, one of them is 
they have a very difficult time um, understanding loss and how much return is needed to recoup the loss. So, for example, if you had a 10% loss uh, in a period of an investment, it, in, a, in a year, it would probably take about an 11% return to get back to even. But if you have, you know, in a significant case where you have a very significant correction or recession, uh, like the Great Recession, where you have a 50% loss, it doesn't take a 50% return to get back to even. It takes a 100% return. Yep. So a lot of times when people get trapped in that, they'll say, well, I'm down. I'm going to wait it out and I'm just going to hope it comes back. But what they're evaluating is that they've already maybe assumed the loss. The probabilities, maybe it won't come back are probably high. And they're thinking that, you know, they're going to get back to even in some relatively short fashion. A lot of times to recoup that loss could take years. You know, the longer, the deeper the loss, it could take seven, eight years. And if you look at what happened in the Great Recession, uh, 15, that some of the averages, particularly I think it was the NASDAQ, crossed back positive in terms of performance. So it was a long time from that time of the loss to get back to even. So that's another one. Um, and then just, you know, they they tend to not do what I consider the uh, heavy lifting work, which is what I call financial planning, which is uh, evaluating you know, and at least analyzing what they need, what they what what is a prudent strategy that has a more predictable outcome, right? And, and that, I think, and I think it's 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 something about what in this country I think our education might be deficient here, where there isn't a lot of uh, what I would call early education in finance to help people you know, do maybe a balance sheet to do a cash flow statement, an income statement, um, how to balance your checkbook, these kind of things that early on give you some tools to help you make better informed financial decisions. So I think that's where it comes back to us, where we're the financial and tax advisors, the, 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 the few that do get qualified good advice they hopefully at least get someone that can help them make more informed decisions. They can ultimately make what they want to do on their own and decisions on, on how they invest or otherwise, but at least they've got good advice to start with. And, and the problem is many people are just what I call, you know, flying blind. Right. And, and that's a dangerous place to be, particularly when you have limited resources or in the case of you're in retirement, where you don't have the ability to go back and make another income to replace it if you make some bad decisions. It's all, it's gonna, we all make bad decisions. We all know that. We all have uh, things that are gonna happen. Uh, the markets, we don't control, but we do control, hopefully, um, the, the, the increasing the chances of, 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 of a successful outcome by making more informed decisions. So those would, those would be some of the major ones I would say most people take for granted. Um, oh, this is golden. Absolutely yeah. golden, Brian. So so let, let's get into the investments. We, we we started talking a little bit about investing. So we have, uh, we'll go back to my 42-year-old and, uh, you know, they're, they're able to save, maybe they're able to save thirty or $40,000 a year through the retirement plan. I mean, talk about growth investing versus value investing. And, and the, let, let's get into the weeds a little bit about 
how you start to put together a an investment strategy. Um, and, and again, obviously, we're not going to talk about individual mutual funds or stocks. We're not going to name names, but talk about the strategies of w- what vehicles you're using. You know, give a little financial, uh, you know, investment one hundred and one to our di- to our dentists that are listening, and 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 tell them how how you how you look at structuring portfolios. Okay, great. Um, so it starts out again with a little bit of information about the individual involved, um, and and one of those criteria that's very important is their risk tolerance. Uh, people at all walks of life, at, even in different age brackets, have different tolerance for risk. Um, and in fact, it's one of those things that was why, you know, customized portfolios or investment advice tailored to your needs is most important because you could have two different people, same circumstances, and one has a high tolerance for risk, one does not. And it's that tolerance for risk that can create the condition for bad decisions. So if you underestimate your risk tolerance, for example, and you say, look, I can handle a 10% loss in an investment if I know over time I'm going to make more money, that, that you agree that you have that ability to do, that's fine. Um, if you say, well, no, you know, actually I can take more risk than that. I can, you know, handle a 25% loss because I'm just looking at the long term. I don't need the money and it's long-term wealth accumulation. So it's retirement related. So the person that takes the 25% uh, loss, you know, uh, potential risk is now putting themselves in a position where if they hold through that, which we've been through two major uh, market corrections in the last 20 years uh, of almost 50% magnitude in each case, um, they will probably be okay longer term. They do suffer what we call the effects of volatility. And in fact, a person that takes less risk might actually actually do better off, which is one of the things that's kind of not well understood, but I'll come back to that. Uh, in any case, what I was going to just say about the person that wants to take more risk it's if you'd go down that path, it's okay because we do have people in that in that area, and they have been very successful because they've weathered through the difficult times. But if you choose to get out at the wrong potential time, because then you change your attitudes about risk, now you have locked in potentially permanent losses, and they may not be recoverable in any short fashion, um, and you might then get in quite of a uh, kind of a whipsaw effect of making one bad decision to the next bad decision, and then trying to make up the return that you lost by chasing returns and getting to this other bad behavior. So we we want to make sure we understand what that person's risk tolerance. And that's a tough thing. We do assessments, um, which are one way to do it. But then it comes down to almost a behavioral kind of um, you know analysis that hopefully a person like myself or others You've gone, you've done, seen enough of this and you've been through some more challenging times and you basically can get a feeling of what this person might do in a particular circumstance. And you try to remember that, that at least to give them another chance to reevaluate that. I, I bring it up a couple of ways, by the way, just a couple of things to get to the real, what is the real risk? And here's two. Um, um, one of them was uh, 
uh, a guy, a person, they tend to talk in percentages. And I said to him, well, if you lost, you know, 20, 30%, you know, would you be worried? And they, and they had enough money. They were pretty well financially off. And I said, oh, you know, I'd be not happy about it, you know, but, you know, I'd probably be okay. And I said, well, what if you lost a million dollars? Well, you know, that's a little different. Now. That's a little different. <laughs> Just a little bit. That's, that's, that's a little bit more meaningful. So we, we, we've tried to move away in talking in terms of percentages and talking actual dollars. And you probably find this with taxes too. Yes. Oh, well, you know, the 25, 22% tax bracket, 24% tax bracket, you know, what's the difference? It's only 2%, but it could be meaningful. Adds up. Right. So we try to get more in talking in dollar terms. The other is, is, you know, looking at behavior. Um, I uh, talked to some uh, client, this is many years back and it's just firm in my mind. And we were in a very bad correction in the 90s. Um, this is right after the recession in 92. And uh, Greenspan was starting to raise rates. And they came in and it, it, was, it was a pretty significant drop in a very short fashion. And the client, I remember, had their hands on the table, like grabbing the table. And I was looking at that. And, I was, and, and the, other, uh, the, the other spouse was advising them, you should be getting out of the market and just you know, move your money over and blah, blah, blah. And that was fine if that's what they wanted to do. But by financial planning, I knew because the client actually lived a very sustainable lifestyle that they were actually okay. And in fact, despite what we were dealing with, that their bigger problem at the time because of state taxes, you remember the old estate tax laws of a million dollars of assets? Right. I said, your bigger problem potentially down the road is because don't really spend this money, you're just kind of saving it, is going to be potentially estate plan problems, estate tax issues. Well, when they heard that, immediately the stress went out of their, you know, body. And you could see visibly the change in their stress level and their behavior. And instead of the individual saying to me, well, why don't we just take a little bit off and maybe reduce our risk? They kind of wanted to step on the pedal. Hmm. It was most surprising thing I've ever seen in my life. No, I don't want to change anything. In fact, I want to know how do I invest more to make more. And it was just that ability of information to give them that, you know, they were going to be okay no matter what, probably most likely in most circumstances. And they decided, no, they wanted to take more risk. So, but so summing up that, we, we look at that first. And then we get into, um, you know, kind of strategy on, uh, you know, whether we should, what, what type of tax favored strategy we might want to use. If it's for retirement, obviously using retirement plans as best as possible to get pre-tax money. We'll also look for a younger individual, if you say maybe they're in their forties, maybe because of the time period, they should be using Roth IRAs, not taking the pre-tax investment, but that working with an accountant like yourself, right. um, doing some analysis on the return potential of reasonable returns using a Roth uh, IRA, for example, versus a regular IRA account pre-tax deduction. In the long run, as you know, if they can go a long time, a Roth IRA has some very significant advantages of not being 
taxable income on the distribution and, phase. So- and, and Brian, I want to I want to jump in on that one because uh, you know, and again, we, we I've told you over and over again, folks. I don't talk politics, but. The fact of the matter is we have a Republican president right now. Someday, it may be next year, it may be in five years, we're going to probably have a Democratic president. And if you listen to the Democrats, what are they going to be doing? They're going to raise taxes. And with our debt, with the debt, they're going to have to raise taxes to pay for the government down the road. So, folks, a Roth IRA is something you should be looking at. Right, Brian? It's it's excellent. And you're absolutely right. In fact, even for our retirement clients that are in retirement, even though maybe justifiably you might not be able to show them that they're going to make more money because they have limited time for the accumulation of that money. We are going, we are doing a lot of what we call Roth conversions. Um, That is a, a big, big part of our conversation with retirement couples. And in fact, everybody, because we do agree with you, whether even whether you don't want to get into the politics of it all, we, we know that tax rates are the lowest they've ever been. That is true. Well, and, and, and frankly, with the deficits and with the debt that's out there, we know, especially with the conversation that's taking place right now in the, in the political forum, that there's nowhere to go but up in tax rates. So, yes, um, we spend an awful lot of time talking about this idea Every client that is an existing client of ours, we are evaluating whether we should be uh, doing Roth conversions um, because of that reason. Um, And yes, if you are saving money for retirement, particularly if you're young, uh, geez, I don't know if they're going to have Roth IRAs anymore, Art. I frankly think they're going to try to take them away. I, I would not I would not be surprised. I want to stop right here because I really want you to give out your information to our listeners. Folks, obviously you can tell Brian, uh, you know, CFP, MBA, uh, much smarter than I, and that's why we have people like Brian on our program. Um, uh, you know, if you haven't done anything, you know, you're going along in life, the kids have soccer and now we gotta we gotta do this, and we're gonna go on vacation, and now we gotta fix the house, and the you know we gotta put a new we gotta put a new roof on. All this is what's called life gets in the way, folks. And you really, really need to take a step back, breathe, and 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 do a financial plan. So, Brian, if someone wants to talk to you, just ask you some questions, no obligation. What would be the best way for them to get a hold of you? And by the way, folks, when you go onto the website, uh, hmwccpa.com. Uh, Brian's podcast will be up. It'll be up in uh, early to mid-October of 2019. You'll be able to download it, and you'll also see all of his contact information. But, Brian, tell the folks how they can get a hold of you. Yeah, if they wanted to call me, uh, my phone number, uh, office number is 949-271-6433. That's 949-271-6433. Happy to have a conversation just to kind of discuss a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish, um, nothing else. Maybe there's something in that conversation that can direct you to the next best thing to do. So uh, feel free to call me. Uh, if you want to email me, you can email me at bconnors, B-C-O-N-N-E-R-S, at N as in Nancy, P as in Paul, B as in Bob, F as in Frank, and G as in George.com. So that's bconnors at mpbfg.com. Um, and, and like anybody out there, I 
joy helping people uh, to find the pathway to their personal success. So uh, usually in a five or 10 minute phone call uh, can assess what you're trying to accomplish. Many times it, it could be something that I cannot help you with, but if I can, I'd certainly try to find some way to get you on the right track. Um, and there's a lot of good people out there um, that are, are available uh, that you may not know about. So sometimes it's just the uh, who's the best contact to solve the problem that you're particularly looking at, uh, whether it's a tax advisor like Art, could be an estate planning attorney, uh, maybe you need someone in the business community that uh, is a specialist in some particular area that you're struggling with or have a challenge. So uh, willing to be a resource for you in any way I can. Well, thank you, Brian. We, we I am very, very careful who I bring onto this program and who I deal with. And um, uh, Brian Connors is a man of high integrity and morals and, and only has uh, his client's best interest at heart. So I would encourage you if you have an opportunity and you just want to talk, Give him a call. Brian, I, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but something we have not addressed on this program are annuities. And I know that you have worked with them. Um, can you tell our listeners, you know, and, and there's, there's stigma about annuities. Annuities are, you know, they're only sold because they're highly leveraged and they're bad and they're horrible. And, and that's not necessarily true. In fact, it, it's not true. Where would you insert annuities? Where are they appropriate for, for our dentists and, and where are they not? Annuities. So annuities is kind of a very misunderstood uh, area in uh, personal finance. Um, many of the discussions center around, obviously, the cost issues, which are and could be uh, relatively significant, depending upon what type of annuities you purchase. But um, the first thing, just maybe to, to knock that out and address that, there are versions of annuities that are lower cost, that have lower surrender charges, which give uh, flexibility to the purchaser as to how much money uh, they will have to, how long they will have to wait till they can surrender their contract. And that's been uh, the scrutiny of the regulators looking at that particular problem because people have been locked into certain types of annuities that they wanted to get out. And unfortunately, because of the surrender charge, it was prohibitive. With all that being said, annuities uh, offer a unique feature set. Uh, annuities provide some of that same uh, capability, which we call our durable income. Now, uh, what that does for you is it, it gives you the ability to uh, invest in a contract with an insurance company, because an annuity is a contract with an insurance company, to provide them uh, an exchange for some money, uh, some guarantees in terms of the benefits that you will receive uh, possibly over a lifetime, a joint survivor, uh, period certain are some of the features or options you have in terms of how you take the income stream for the rest of your life. Um, so one of the benefits of that is, is that as we face this longevity risk problem, having income that will not uh, you know, will continue to last as long as you're alive and potentially your spouse. Uh, is something that we kind of say should be considered in any kind of retirement plan uh, because uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the financial markets over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, there's some other risks that could really derail a long-term retirement, and that is what we call one of them is sequence risk, which is the possibility that you go into retirement, 
precisely about the time we go into a recession, which could uh, lead to a significant drawdown in your retirement account, which may put you in a position where you will not have enough money to live. Um, so back to annuities specifically, there's three types of annuities. There's a fixed annuity, which is a guaranteed interest rate, like, an, like typically what you might find in a bank account or a CD. There is a index annuity, which is tied to some index in terms of how you make your money in terms of performance. And then there's a variable annuity, which is akin to very similar what uh, mutual funds are, but they're not mutual funds. They're called sub-accounts in a variable annuity product. Do you use all three of those products? We will evaluate their use based upon the client-specific needs, what they're trying to do. And it's also dependent upon where you are in the cycle of what's happening with interest rates. For example, fixed annuities currently will not offer you very much uh, guaranteed income. I mean, interest rates are so low, as you know, Art, that uh, typically a fixed annuity might only offer you 3% or something like that guaranteed which is locking yourself into basically a, like a long-term CD-like investment, which you know generally doesn't fit very well for what people are looking for. That, that might not even cover the rate of inflation. You might end up actually in the negative. Of course. And that's why probably at this juncture, we would not consider that. Index annuities are tied to some um, benchmark, usually an um, index on one of the uh, major market averages, typically the S&P 500. And you get some form of participation of that performance uh, on the upside, but you also have the benefit that you do not have any real downside risk because if the markets were to go south and lose money in a current period, uh, the period that you're invested in, every period is it's not necessarily calendar. It could be the contract period, which is uh, based upon um, the nature of when you bought your contract, a specific date. To the following year. All that being said, uh, what happens there is, is that if you have a loss during that period in one of the averages and one of the indexes that you're tied to, you will not suffer a loss in your account value. So your account value would stay the same during those down periods. So there's some benefits to that. Yeah. So and- Brian, I was, I was going to ask you real quick, talk about, I mean, I know that there are People who sell annuities and they sell it to make a commission, they don't sell it for necessarily what's in the best interest of the client. Um, what are some things in annuities if someone is presented with one that they should just kind of throw up a, a red flag over? I, I think they need to look at the uh, major contract uh, costs uh, and take a really uh, judicious eye on that because uh, there are costs, significant costs in annuity products, which is kind of one of the downsides. But the key one to start with is what we call the surrender charge. This is a cost that you incur when you purchase the annuity, which is usually a percentage of your premium or your deposit is in your in the normal uh, parlance of what people think of into the contract. And that is an amount uh, of money. Uh, let's just say maybe it's 6% uh, is typical, could be higher, could be as much as 10 or 12%. The ones that are that high we would say you should probably be very careful or steer clear of that because you probably can find a better product with a lower surrender charge. Whatever that percentage surrender charge, that is the amount of money that if you were to surrender your contract, say in the first year, you would receive back less that percentage of what you put in. So if it was 10%, 
and you put in $100,000 into, say, a, an annuity contract, per se, then you would lose $10,000 of your money. That is not good. Now, no. what happens is over a period of years, typically six, seven years, that surrender charge will decline to zero. So if you're going in with the right intentions, even if you have a surrender charge, you may not incur that cost no matter what because um, you're going to be in the contract long enough. And annuities, by the nature of why you would use one, is should be considered as a longer-term investment. And it's also a retirement type of product. So it's both an investment and a retirement product. So when you're looking at this, you should be considering this as for something you're trying to accomplish that has... Uh, a longer term period that you want this investment and this retirement product to give you, which is typically what we call some form of long-term income stream that you cannot outlive. Uh, you, whether you annuitize it, which we don't generally recommend, or you use some new features, which are called, one of them is called lifetime income benefits. We kind of like those because you're not annuitizing the contract, which I'll, just, I'll share with you what that means in a second. What you're doing is you're taking a systematic withdrawal from your account over your lifetime, and the guarantee is that the insurance company will pay you that lifetime income benefit regardless of whether the contract has any value during the period of the contract. So you're, you're transferring that risk to the insurance company. Insurance company. And that is, a, is an important thing to consider. What you're doing with insurance companies is you're transferring risk of some nature to them to guarantee you something else. One of those benefits, most important again, is something that gives you durable lifetime income. That is a big issue, particularly because we're all living longer. We do not know uh, how much money we're ultimately going to need because it's somewhat dependent upon how long we live. And that is a significant issue in terms of what we're looking at right now, which is called sustainable retirement. So back to this idea of lifetime income benefits. What is that? Lifetime income benefits was a feature that came out uh, probably about maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, They call it in some form the guaranteed minimum income benefit is another way of describing this kind of feature set. But What a lifetime income benefit and what we particularly like about it is, again, the idea that you could set up the contract to pay you a certain income benefit for your lifetime and potentially your spouse's lifetime, but you're not annuitizing the contract. You're not uh, exchanging uh, the money that you put into the contract for this guarantee. And if you don't live that long, then the insurance company owns it. That's what annuitization does. It's It's an exchange of money for some form of guarantee. Lifetime income benefits, you're not doing that. What you are doing is doing a systematic withdrawal. You own the cash value in your particular uh, re, you know, annuity. And as long as that money has value in that contract, if you and potentially your spouse were to pass on, that money then goes to your beneficiary. So you don't lose the cash value in the contract. And we like that idea. Uh, we don't want to see people... Um, lose any kind of money that is rightfully theirs that potentially could be shared with their family members uh, if they can't use the benefit. So lifetime income benefits has some uh, other factors that are kind of also interesting, which we can discuss if you like. Well, I, unfortunately, Brian, we've kind of come to the end of our time. With, with every podcast I do, I need about four hours with my guest. You have so much information 
Folks, I, I want to, I'm going to let Brian give out his information one more time. And, and if you are, you know, if you go to the doctor and the doctor says you have uh, lymphoma, you, lymphoma, you have a cancer, you have a problem, you're going to get a second opinion. I'm going to strongly urge you, if you've gone to a financial planner or an investment advisor and that person has made recommendations that you just don't feel terribly comfortable with, I'm going to suggest that you get a second opinion from Brian. Brian uh, Brian is one of the most ethical, honest people I've met in the financial services business. Uh, again, we, we only have those types. I apologize for calling you a type, but we have those types on our show. So, Brian, please give out your contact information. So if people have questions, uh, no obligation to work with you at all. Just they have a question about their their portfolio. They have a question about their financial plan. We didn't even get the life insurance. We're going to have you back on another time and we're going to talk about life insurance because that's an hour conversation. Give out your contact information, please. Yeah. Thank you, Art. Uh, So the best way to reach me is by phone. And my phone number is 949-271-6430. Again, that's 949-271-6430. And if you want to email me, uh, you can email me at the Connors, that's B-C-O-N-N-E-R-S, at N-P-B-F-G.com. Brian Connors, you're a wonderful gentleman. I'm really proud to call you my friend and my colleague. And um, we see each other every month at our wonderful Ellermeyer breakfast, which is they just keep getting better and, and better. And um, folks, if you are uh, looking for someone to help you with your financial plan, your investments, uh, Brian is a great resource to talk to you. He, again, you know, fee-based financial planners are wonderful because, you know, he's, he's not trying to sell you anything. That's, that's the types of folks I like to work with. If you want to get a hold of me at my office, I'm at 714-259-0505. Um, if you want to look up all of our podcasts, go to our website, which is www.hmwccpas.com. Go to the resource link. Go to the podcast link. Brian's will be published in mid-October, and uh, you'll be able to get all of his contact information and notes about the show. If you're looking for a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States, go to our website, www.adcpa.org, and look up a member. Uh, You will not be sorry. Brian, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you, Art. Appreciate it. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen, for this uh, episode or edition. I never know whether to call it an episode or edition. I think I'll just switch off every week of The Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman, CPA. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about our podcast, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 